Valentine's Day. <laughs> I love you too, Sarah. <clears throat> I love the Psalms. Um, I don't know if you've spent any time in them at all, but um, there's times where we think like the Bible doesn't really get me. And then there's times where we come, like we did this morning, to Psalm 73. It is Psalm 73. Uh, There's a typo on Ryan's sheet that I printed, so that was my bad. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you, God. And I read those things and go, yep, God gets me. So thankful that he doesn't leave us there in that space um, and thankful to be able to spend some time together this morning um, looking again at the letter of Philippians in this series that we've called Journey Together. And last week we opened it up, we acknowledged that we're looking at somebody else's mail, we're reading somebody else's letter and a conversation, we're stepping into the middle of a conversation happening between two parties that aren't us, but as we do that, there are some principles that we see, there are some hearts, there are some attitudes that we see, and there's some teaching that we can glean from this, because this isn't just a a historical letter in a dusty old database somewhere but it actually is um, from our faith family, love letters from our faith family, relationships um, growing and blossoming and the, and the gospel um, being rooted deeply in people's hearts and seeing communities transform. So I like this letter a lot, and it challenges me in a number of different ways, and, I, and, I, and I'm glad for this time to be able to walk with you through it. Have you ever had an experience that, Um, maybe a younger version of you, maybe uh, as a child you would have thought, this is the worst thing that could ever possibly happen. And it happens to you, and you think, well, maybe that wasn't so bad. Maybe I learned something from it, or maybe it opened up this other opportunity. Those, Those times, I think, are pretty rare. Those don't always happen. Um, But maybe you've had this situation, and I hear this story actually a lot more regularly. There's something in our minds that we think is so great. Maybe it's not the highest good, but it's like a little step below the highest good. Like if I could achieve that, or if that would happen to me, then I would be happy. Life would work well. Um, My family would get off my back about stuff. Like I could fix all of these problems that I got. Like like whatever that thing is, um, if I had a... Anyway, sometimes my thoughts don't come together until this time. So I was watching a video, and I could have shared it with you, and I didn't. But I was talking with some famous actors, some actors that you would recognize from sitcoms and things like that. People who had worked hard. They had busted their butts. They had done the grind thing in New York City, and they had tried to become actors, and they had put in the long hours, and they had done the really crappy jobs to try to get that promotion, and they had finally made their break and got a a nationally, internationally recognized sitcom, and they were the star of it. And they suddenly had a paycheck that could more than make ends meet. And they had recognition where they sometimes wished that they could walk around with a mask on and people wouldn't notice them. Um, because people just saw them and they knew who they were. And this thing that they had worked their whole careers for, they had finally accomplished and said, and, and this guy's sitting across from him. He says, did it give you everything you want? He said, No. And the, and the circle of, of friends that you can complain about being like a super famous star too is really small. Like 
if I had that level of fame, if I had that level of, of richness, maybe things would work out better for me. And, and people who have achieved that have said, no, this, there's still something missing in my life. <clears throat> I have a, a friend who, I, who uh, we were talking about paychecks one time. And he's like, yeah, well, if I could get a raise, if I could make this amount of money, then, then really, like, I could get myself in order. I'm like, man, if you can't manage the amount of money that you have, then what makes you think that if you have more money, you're going to make different decisions? And he's like, no, nah, man, if you have more money, it fix all the problems. And more money just exacerbates the problems, doesn't actually fix, the, it isn't actually a solution. And he, he didn't buy it. He said, look, the richest man in all the world up until his time um, was a guy named Solomon. He, we hear his story in, in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament. And he was a wealthy king. He had, every, he had people from near and far coming to give him tribute, coming to ask him questions because he was brilliant. He was wise. And he had all this money. He had all of the ladies lined up to marry him so that he could have all of these um, relationships of power between neighboring nations. Like he had the world at his fingertips and he wrote the most depressing book in the scriptures and said, I have all this money and it doesn't do anything. Like when I die, I don't really get to say who gets to spend it. It just goes where it goes. I'm not in control of it and I have more than I can use. And so all of life is vanity. I told that story to my coworker and he said, yeah, but I'd like to learn that lesson from experience. <laughs> Let me get all that money and then I'll decide whether or not it actually is satisfactory. There, there are things that we think are going to be helpful to us that in the end, if we actually got them, other people's stories or wisdom tells us that they won't actually achieve all of the things that we want for them to. Um, so what do, we, what do we pour our lives into? If that's true... If the good that we want, the, the, the money or the whatever it is, it could be a number of things. But if those things that we want may not give us the peace and the satisfaction that we, that we desire, and maybe the good things actually bring us, or maybe the bad things might bring us some degree of, of, of peace and comfort, what do we ask for? How do we know how to live like, do we become masochists and, like, try to make our lives as miserable as possible? Like, do we... That doesn't seem backwards. I think I'd have a hard... Or that doesn't seem right. That seems backwards. I think I'd have a hard time convincing us that that's the direction we need to go. But I think we'll get a little bit of perspective as we read together in Philippians chapter 1 this morning. And before you turn there, I just invite you to um, pray together with me. And we'll pray uh, the disciples' prayer together. This isn't a magic formula, like these words don't sprinkle down anything from heaven for you. But it's the model that Jesus left for us to pray. He says, when you pray, you should pray like this. And it's helpful for us if we pray together to use the same words. So that's why we do it. Would you pray together with me? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So would you open with me to Philippians chapter 1? And we're going to begin where we left off in verse 12. 
Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, if you're following along in the blue Bibles here, it's on page 1222. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. And I'll just read the first couple of verses here. We'll break this up a little bit this morning. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So let's pause there. Because remember, we're dropping into somebody else's mail and we're dropping into the middle of a conversation. So what is going on here? I told you last week that when... when Paul came to the city of Philippi and he started to preach the gospel and people started to trust Jesus there. One of the things that happened was that Paul was immediately arrested. He was arrested and put in jail. He was beaten and um, he could have escaped prison, but he didn't. And that led to the jailer trusting Jesus. Remember, we talked about that. That's all in Acts chapter 16. So Paul's history with the Philippians is, is him being imprisoned. And it's been years since that happened. He, he started that church. He had to leave. He started other churches. He's been traveling. And now they hear, by word of a messenger who's come and told them, that he's in prison again. And so you kind of got to wonder, like, can't this guy just stay out of trouble? Like, can't he just lighten up a little bit? Like, every time I turn around, he's getting thrown in prison for something or another, and usually has something to do with Jesus. He even says here is because of Jesus. So he's gone on, it's been years, and he's in prison, and they hear word that he's in prison, and they're concerned. Like, what's going on? He's actually probably more like, it's more like house arrest, but the way house arrest worked before you had little ankle monitors is the ankle monitors were just attached to a guard who would stay in your house with you. So you'd be chained to a guard in your house. You could live and do what you needed to do. You could cook your own breakfast, but it's kind of hard to work. So you had to have family or friends come and support you. They would have to come and bring you, bring you food or bring you what you needed. But by and large, for most of the time, you were just chained with a guard there in your house. You couldn't leave. You couldn't go anywhere until it was time for your trial. So when your trial, like it was just to make sure that you stayed in town because the trial was coming up. He wasn't super restricted, but he was still in chains. He still couldn't travel. He couldn't leave the city that he was in. And so they're concerned about him. Like, is this going to hold you up, Paul? Like, the thing that we know about you is that you are a traveler. You you came and you spent some time with us, but then you quickly moved on and you planted a church in the next town and you planted a church in the next town and you planted a church in the next town and now you're chained down? What's going to happen to Paul if he can't travel? (laughs) Whoa. They're concerned about him. So he's, he's writing out of concern for them. He responds, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. You might be concerned that because I can't travel, because I can't do my speaking engagements, that, that everything is put on hold. Because I'm on quarantine, life has stopped. But I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. The imperial guard, eh? That's not like normal, normal guys in blue. That's not just like the Ocala PD. Like that's, that's the secret service. 
I want you to know that everybody in the Secret Service knows why I'm under house arrest. The guys who serve the president know that I am being held for Jesus. Because remember, somebody has to be chained to Paul. And because of the nature of his legal case, he was waiting for a trial before Caesar, which means Caesar's guards watch over him. So the guys who watch over Caesar are also watching over Paul. You see, like, the degrees of separation kind of closing in here between Paul and having an opportunity to share the gospel with the most powerful person in the world at the time. Doesn't it seem like maybe God's hand might be on that to make that happen? Because who's Paul? Like he was, he, he was kind of somebody in the Jewish world. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had, he had religious education, but that didn't carry any weight in the secular world. In fact, the Romans really were not fans of the Jewish people. They had problems with them repeatedly throughout history. It was not uncommon for Romans to do stuff to beat up on Jews just for the sake of it, just because they were causing trouble. And yet, now Paul has an opportunity to go and speak the truth. And, and the whole imperial guard knows the real reason why he's in, in prison. It's not just because... Uh, he, was, he was causing trouble is because he believes that Jesus actually came back from the dead. And he believes that if Jesus actually came back from the dead, that means that his death was sufficient to forgive my sins and to give me a right relationship with God. He's on trial for a historical fact. This isn't a religious opinion. This is like, no, I believe that Jesus was crucified. You guys have records. Y'all are Romans. You kept records of everybody that you killed. You know you killed Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I'm on trial because I believe he came back from the dead and that his resurrection proves that his death was sufficient to pay for my sins and to make a right relationship with God. What you meant for evil and punishment, God has used for good. In verse 14, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Look, if I'm willing to go to the mat for something, does that give you better confidence that what I'm proclaiming is true? Like, if I told you, I don't know. If I told you I thought, well, let's just use, let's rewind if, if, if we didn't know what happened in the last couple of weeks. If I told you GameStop stocks were getting ready to shoot up a ton, and I was telling you, you should put all your stock, all your money, you should invest in GameStop right now. It's going to go up. But I kept all my money in my pocket, or I kept spending my money on Apple. Do I got skin in the game? Are you going to buy that? Is there anything, was there anything a month ago that made us think that GameStop stocks, GameStop stocks were going to skyrocket? Because retail's dying. Like, no. But if I told you, hey, GameStop stocks, GameStop stocks, that's harder to say than I thought it would be. GameStop stocks are getting ready to skyrocket, and I've taken out a second mortgage against my house in order to buy everything that I can. I think you should also invest. Do I got skin in the game? So this, this crazy Jew who used to kill people who said things like this, but now this crazy Jew is walking around saying, hey, Jesus came back from the dead. 
And that has spiritual impacts for each and every one of us. Like, he was killed, dead, 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 three days dead, legally dead, 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 and now is alive and resurrected and has ascended to heaven, and that has impacts for your spiritual life day over day. All right, Paul. Like, I don't know what you saw. Like, I don't know what kind of medicinal herbs you've been testing out, but good for you, Paul. I'm glad you do you, Paul. But then he's willing not only to be arrested and beaten for it in your town, but then to be arrested and put under house arrest and to go to trial before Caesar for this fact that he's claiming is true. Verse 14, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Oh, I didn't see it, but I know a guy who's willing to spend his whole life for it. He's giving up everything that this is true and that it matters for you and it matters for me. I'm in. Just a couple of thoughts. Our, our, our mission here, church, is to invite our neighbors to meet and follow Jesus. And that meet component is actually very particular. I, I, that is something that I think is actually important and maybe something that Christians haven't done real well in the last couple of generations. Maybe that's just a broad statement and I'm cynical. But notice, notice it says, I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. It doesn't say that any of them believed. It doesn't say that any of them bought in. It doesn't say that any of them gave their lives to Jesus. It doesn't say that any of them wanted to follow Jesus. But they have met him through Paul. There are people who think they know what Jesus is all about, but they've never actually met him. I, I'm struck by the times that I've had conversations with people that have turned, steered towards spiritual conversations at the park or in my workplace or if I'm just at the grocery store, like just normal conversations with people around town and they're like, oh, well, I go to, insert name of megachurch that you would never be able to verify if I actually go to it. <clears throat> I go to this church. Like, I see you're talking spiritual. I just want you to know, like, I go to this church. And, he, and I'm like, okay, well, tell me about Jesus, like, how, what's, who is Jesus? What do you, like, I don't really care where you go to church because parking in a garage doesn't make you a car. Sitting in a church doesn't make you a Christian. Like, tell me about Jesus. I, um, I like him, I guess. <laughs> I am pro-Jesus. Great. Really happy for you. I want people to meet Jesus, not just know something kind of vaguely about how they kind of grew up a little bit. I'm astonished myself and the times that I've been through it, I've been through it a number of times, but I'm astonished at Jesus every time I read the biographies about Jesus. Even when I know what he's going to do, it still blows my mind that he does it. And here... Paul is just trying to help people meet Jesus. I want you to know the truth of what happened. I want you to know that this isn't just some religious belief out in the atmosphere somewhere, that this is based on a historical fact that Jesus was crucified by Romans, but then he was raised by God. And that if he was raised by God, that there's some kind of impact that changes how we live. So 
invite our neighbors to meet Jesus. They don't have to follow, but we do want to introduce them. But then you see, too, that if we are inviting our neighbors to meet and follow Jesus, that part of following Jesus is inviting our neighbors. So you've got the meeting in verses 12 and 13, and then you've got the inviting happening again, the next generation in verse 14. The brothers now are inviting their neighbors more boldly to follow Jesus. An increased confidence in Jesus. All because Paul got locked up. It reminds me that no one can follow Jesus alone. But all of this hinges on an eternal perspective, doesn't it? Um, If I get locked up, I reckon it's probably pretty easy to focus in on the things that I'm uncomfortable with. This ankle bracelet is not very comfortable. That guy that I'm chained to smells. He curses a lot. I don't really like talking to him. He makes me uncomfortable. I can't go to work. I'd much rather be making tents for myself. I feel dependent on other people because they have to bring me groceries. But Paul says, oh, I'm chained to him, but he's chained to me. He he can't go anywhere. He's getting paid to spend time in the same room with me. I got nothing but time to kill. Tell me your story. I'll tell you mine. Let me tell you about Jesus. Like, I want you to know who it is that I'm, I'm here in prison for. Like, it's not because I'm just I'm trying to cause trouble. Like, do we try to see our day-to-day through heaven's window? Are we saying, I'm chained to this guy? Or are we saying... He's chained to me. And maybe I have something to share with him. Do we try to see our day-to-day through heaven's window, from heaven's perspective? Because we get keyed in on the uncomfortable. When the air condition breaks, all I want is that cold air flowing again. And maybe I have missed that there is a person who has walked into my home that's there to fix the air conditioner. But they've got a life too. And they've got a family too. And we have brief moments together. And maybe, maybe, maybe that person needs to meet Jesus. And maybe upon meeting him, they'll want to follow him too. Here's the big idea. Following Jesus changes how we see the best and the worst of life. Let's continue reading in verse 15. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So as the brothers have become more confident to proclaim the name of Christ because of his imprisonment, there are brothers who are 
doing things from the right motives. They're doing things out of love. They're saying, look, like, I believe this. I'm bought in. I have taken out that mortgage on my house to invest in that thing that doesn't seem like it makes much sense, but it actually makes perfect sense when you're bought into it. Like, I'm doing this out of love. I'm proclaiming Christ out of love. But then there's a second group of fakes that are like, I don't really like that Paul guy. He kind of is a stick in the mud. He's... He thinks he knows it all. He's, he's out there traveling over, everywhere he goes. He starts a church. And who does he think he is? Like he's some kind of Mr. Popularity. He's got some kind of personality complex. Like what is, what's he think he's doing all like, why can't he just stick to one thing? And you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to do things the right way. I'm going to do things the way that are opposite to Paul. He travels all the time. I'm going to stay here and I'm going to preach the gospel just in one place because I don't have to be Paul. Like, I'm going to do it better than Paul by staying in one place. Like, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Look how much better I am than Paul because I'm not going to leave you. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What do, what do we do? Like, there's people that are genuine who are proclaiming Christ out of a, a heart of love. Like, there are churches that are doing the right thing. And there are churches that are doing it just to try and do something different than what they grew up in. You know, that actually is a danger. <laughs> that is, those are heart issues that I deal with as a pastor on the reg. There's times where we sit down to do some planning and because I grew up in an environment where it was always, we've never done it that way. My gut reaction is, if we've never done it that way, then it must be better. And I try to do everything we've never tried to do before. Simply because that was not how we did it when I was growing up. But that's selfish ambition. That's me thinking that I can figure something out that the generations before me didn't know. That's arrogance. And Paul knows that there's guys like me there. Thank God that he shows me those things in those moments. And I say, well, maybe the generation before us had some wisdom too. Let's learn from them. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And if Christ is proclaimed, Paul says... In that I rejoice. Fake or not, building up your own kingdom or not, if you're talking about Jesus, we're on the same team. We read this week on Friday out of John 14 where Jesus is teaching. He says, it's better that I leave, which is astonishing. It's better that I leave. And when I leave, y'all are going to do greater works than I did. I don't know that I have everything ironed out about what he's talking about. But I do think that he's pointing to the work of the Spirit in the body of Christ on earth today. He's saying, look, like, I'm one person stuck in one place and I'm doing one ministry and that has a limit. But when the Spirit comes, he's going to fill all of you and all of you are going to have a diversity of gifts and you're all going to work together to accomplish something. And some of you are going to do it one way and some of you are going to do another. We're going to have a disagreement about the method, but the message is always going to stay the same and we're going to declare the good news and we're going to invite others to walk in the light of the fact that Jesus has overcome death and sin. 
We're going to collaborate rather than compete. It just makes me ask, are we confident enough in Jesus to do what he asks us uniquely to do? Are we confident enough in Jesus to do what he asks us uniquely to do? There are things, the will of God is actually pretty clear in the scripture. Um, If we look in Thessalonians, it says, The will of God is this, your sanctification, that you would become more and more and more like Jesus. So there's a general will of God, but there's something specific. There are different, um, there's backgrounds that come to us. There's experience that we have, either individually or shared. There's, There's different things that each of us have uniquely that God has given us a gift for to share with others in a special way? Are we confident enough in Jesus to do what he has uniquely asked us to do? Paul traveled all the time, never stopped. Would have drove me up the wall. Some people stayed put and they spent, invested their whole lives in one community. That's more how I'm wired. But it doesn't mean it's better or worse. It's just a different method. And so there's hundreds of thousands of churches out there in America, across the nation, across the globe. And sometimes we look at them and go, well, I'm not doing it. We're not doing it that way. Are we doing it wrong? Are we wrong? Are they wrong? They must be wrong because they're, they got a lot of lights and smoke. They must be wrong. I don't really have much energy for asking that question, but I do want to ask the question, what is God asking us uniquely to do? And will we have the confidence in Jesus to do it? We're a small congregation in a rural community with 10 acres of land and lightning fast internet. That's a really strange combination of stuff. We've got fiber optic internet to this little podunk building. So we're here and we're a small group of people, but we're live streaming across the internet because we can faster than most. So if God has given us these gifts, will we have the confidence in Jesus to do what he's called us to do uniquely? Because following Jesus changes how we see the best and the worst of life. Let's pick up in that next paragraph. It's about halfway through verse 18, but the English Standard Version breaks that verse in half. And just as a sidebar, the verses and the chapters are all made up. You know, Paul didn't write the numbers in as he was writing the letters. He just wrote the letter, right? Okay. Sometimes that's helpful to remember. That next paragraph. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. 
Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is a really interesting passage. House arrest, that doesn't seem like that big a deal, kind of uncomfortable. But if he's appealing to Caesar, Caesar's got a lot of things to do. And so if you appeal to Caesar, like that's a life or death situation. Because if you waste Caesar's time, he might just kill you. Paul says, I'm confident that because you are praying for me and because the spirit of Christ is working in me, that, that, that I'm going to be delivered through this. I will not be put to shame, but that in my body, now as always with full courage, that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. I'm going to be delivered. If he kills me, I'm delivered. If he lets me go, I've been delivered. I've got nothing to lose. We think of death as as scary, as an end, as something that we're concerned about. We've spent time thinking about it. But Paul here doesn't make it seem so frightening. I'm going to be delivered. If I fly home, that's better. Like, y'all are great, but if I get to be with Christ, like, that is far better. I'm delivered. If he lets me go, great. Like, that's better for y'all because there's still work that I have to do. I still would like to impart to you more um, teaching. I still would like to share more experiences with you. I'd like for us to labor more together in the gospel. I'd like for you to be the bearer of more spiritual fruit. And if I can work with you and labor with you, then we can bear more fruit together. And that's, that's better. I'm hard-pressed between the two. To live is Christ. I'm in his service. I'm his son. He's my master. He's my father. I'm going to do what he wants me to do. If I'm alive, if I'm breathing, I'm breathing his name. If I die, it's better for me. Severance package, retirement, that's all right. And even in the moment where he's nose to nose with death, you notice he's praying for the growing faith of this congregation. For he prayed before, I, I pray that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, the glory and praise of God. He's still praying that their faith would grow. He's still hoping that they would make progress. He's still striving. He's still grateful for them. That in this time of imprisonment, which if he changes his focus and looks at the earthly perspective, kind of discouraging. If he looks at it through heaven's window, it's going to be all right. It's going to be good either way. He's thankful for them. And he's praying that they would grow and that they would have more and more opportunity to give glory to Jesus. Is our faith hope-filled?
I think it's possible to have genuine, like, saving faith and still not be hope-filled. <laughs> um, there's a faith maybe that's wishful. I hope everything works out. <sighs> not sure that, not sure how God's going to pull this one off, but uh, I'm kind of hedging my bets there. Like, I'm wishful. I got that wishful faith. If our faith is hope-filled and not wishful, then we are confident in Jesus. I don't know how it's going to happen, but I am confident that Jesus is going to work it out. That the sorrow that I feel now is not worthy to be compared with the glory and the joy that he has stored up for us in the coming days, the coming months, and on and on and on into eternity. I'm confident, not wishful. Maybe we've got a faith that's fateful. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Yes, I'm here for it. Can't really change anything. I guess I'm in prison. All right. Looks like I'm going to be executed. All right. Here we go. There's a faith that's fateful. But I think a hopeful faith is eager to participate. I'm here. It could go either way. I'm willing to die for you, Jesus, but like, I'm praying for them. I pray that they would grow. I pray that they have more and more reasons to rejoice and give glory to you, that their worship gathering. Can you imagine your, your, your pastor uh, that has been with you, or who started the church, he was with you for a while and he left and he's been traveling and you hear things and things aren't going great for him. And then he gets to come back and y'all get to worship Jesus together. Like that's going to be a happy meeting again. The glory and the praise that's going to Jesus at that reunion For loved ones we haven't seen in a while. Are we eager to participate? Or are we fateful? I guess they made up their mind. It is what it is. Is our faith hope filled? Because I think following Jesus changes how we see the best and the worst of life. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are a surgeon that taps into and touches parts of our soul that maybe have been asleep for a while, maybe have been deadened. If we've been walking with you for a while, then there's a routine that gets established, which in and of itself is not bad. It's not wrong to have a routine with you, but, but some of the joy seeps out, the passion, the enthusiasm. We acknowledge your sovereignty and sometimes we just become fateful. We're not really sure about things and we just become wishful. Jesus, I pray that you'd fill us with confidence to be hopeful.
in you. As we come face to face with the best of life, would you remind us that even the best things does not satisfy like you do? As we come face to face with the worst of life and the hardest decisions that have had to be made, would you remind us that you are good in guiding us? Would your kingdom come and your will, above all else, be done on earth as it is in heaven? It's in your name we pray. Amen.